have you ever noticed kind of that human tendency there is to divide people, okay? Like uh, several years ago, Karen and I were flying, I'm not sure where we were, but somehow we were positioned pretty close to first class. And, uh, and I, I was kind of curious what's going on up there, you know? And so I start giving Karina the play-by-play commentary. Like, I'm sure she really appreciates that. Like, whoa, okay, Karina, they got hot towels, you know, and they're putting them on their face, you know? And we're, we're like sitting there sweating because they didn't turn the air conditioning on, you know? And you're sitting next to a guy who's never heard of deodorant and things like that. And you're just like, oh. And then, and then they're like bringing refreshments and drinks to everybody. And they're very nice. And everybody else, we're like... You know, you have about that 12 people up there, and then you have like 200 plus kind of in the cattle class where you're sitting there, and I'm kind of watching all of this. And then, of course, you know, at some point in the flight, there's there's meals that are offered to the folks in first class. Not just like some sort of sandwich they nuked in a microwave, like real nice meals on China, and they're treating them so nice. Uh, I, I want you to know they, they do treat you nice in cattle class if you're flying there, because they give you like this little bag. It's got like four and a half pretzels in it, you know? Or it's got this, uh, it's got, well, they call it like a biscuit, but it's it's really a dog treat made for humans. You know, you just kind of gnaw on that, and you can look at your neighbor there, and you're just, you're just kind of stuck in your mouth there. And that's kind of how it works. And maybe you, uh, you're really getting a special treatment, you get a bag of peanuts. They're unsalted, of course, but they're to give it to you. And then somewhere in the flight, after everybody in first class has been given pillows, and they kind of tuck them in with their little blankets and stuff, uh, they announced that um, there's this like curtain, okay, kind of like a wall of you know Berlin Wall. You know, don't cross it. If you're in first class, well, we have a restroom facility for you, and it's okay located here. And for the rest of you, there are bathrooms located in the back of the plane. You know, and after they've pumped all these kids with Coca-Cola and stuff like that, they're all running and standing in line and stuff. It's just a mess, but we just kind of create these divisions. That's what it's like to kind of fly. But have you ever noticed, though? That just in this idea of creating distinctions, that we uh, we got labels. Like for instance, almost all of our clothing, I mean cars, and there are thousands and thousands of products that are trying to push a particular label. There's a lot of good marketing that goes in that. I got part of my degree is in marketing, so I understand that. But like, wow, we're just enamored by labels. We're going to wear it on our shirt. And because they want you to identify with a particular status, a current kind of lifestyle, a mindset that comes with wearing these kind of clothes and shoes or deodorant or cologne or whatever it is, because it's all about these labels. And we're, we, we create distinctions all the time. And oftentimes it's based on things we value. So for instance, if you value intelligence, so with our children and we have people that are quick learners and some that are slow. And this happens really early on. I mean, you've got parents, and, and they're pretty sure and not afraid to tell you that their two-year-old is probably a prodigy, you know, they're a genius, you know. They can put these blocks together in ways they've never seen happen before. And, and, and you know, it's all good to be excited about your children and stuff like that. But we're, my kid is actually talented and gifted, right? Or then, or like if it's about money, we have rich and we have the not so rich, the poor. The value physical appearance. Boy, we're constantly running this judgment, right? We got the attractive people and the folks that are not so attractive, right? And we're, we're running these distinctions automatically. It's, it's just like second nature to us. Or athletics. If you're a great athlete in the state of Texas, we refer to you as, anybody know, a blue chipper. You're showing a lot of athletic promise. And after all, that's really, really important, right? We see, friends, 
This happens in the world. And should it surprise you that we're sticking labels on everybody and everything? Because, frankly, if you don't know God, if he's, if Jesus isn't your identity and your, your sense of well-being, and his mission is your purpose, then, of course, it makes sense. In the world, you got all these labels. But i got news for you. This whole idea of discrimination and prejudice, it's taking root in the church. And it might be just as bad in the church as outside of it. It is such a huge issue, this issue of discrimination, that James tackles it head-on as the first listed obstacle to you and I maturing in our faith. I mean, discrimination can take a legion of forms. You can have economic discrimination, academic discrimination, sexual, political, racial. Uh, you got discrimination of folks that live in the city and folks that live in the country. And this is kind of what that looks like. Both are convinced that they couldn't live in the other's world. The city folks are absolutely convinced that, man, folks living on the country, there's no way that you can make it my sophisticated society. You just aren't going to function too well. On the other hand, folks that are pride themselves in being country folk, why, they're like, they're pretty assured that if you got dropped off anything off the interstate that you couldn't find your way out if you had to. You don't have the necessary prerequisite skill to survive. And there's this discrimination that we play against each other. Even in the church, you see a, a theological uh, distinctions that are made, a, a theological superiority that your particular angle or brand of theology is superior. And really, for about the last hundred years, the church has had a series of particular doctrines that create these disparities. We've got the folks that are really good with God, and those who are second class, like the rest of you, that either don't have this experience or this particular take on theology. We discriminate on age. We got young people that discriminate against the old, and older people like, man, they don't know anything because they're young. In essence, we discriminate on the basis of appearance, ancestry, age, achievement, and affluence. Those were all the eight words that I could think of to put that in there. But it is widespread, isn't it? And we do it. Isn't it interesting that John said, perfect love casts out fear. Oh, you guys are smart. You read your Bible. That's right. Perfect love casts out fear. But isn't it surprising how potent it is that fear casts out love? Friends, you need to know something. Discrimination is a blight on our society. It is a cancer in the church. Its presence and manifestation is, is really indicative of serious heart issues. And I got news for you. It's got to be addressed, and it's got to stop now. What is going on? You and I, we simply cannot mature in our relationship with Christ if we're running around living with labels and putting people in categories. And that's why James tackles it head on. You see, the theme of the book of James, anybody have to remember? Two words. Yes, I'm at the white church. We've got all these just highly intelligent, really know their Bibles really well. Two words. Maturity matters. Remember, look at James chapter 1 this summer. He gives you, James chapter 1 gives you the mindset of those who are maturing in faith. They understand that maturity comes through growing through trials. It comes from overcoming temptations, and it comes from living out the truth. The rest of the book, or almost the entire rest of the book, is all about dealing with obstacles to maturity. And the very first one he lists 
is the need to develop a love that sees through navel labor. Let's take a look at chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Does it surprise you that the early church had problems like discrimination? Well, it shouldn't. You need to know that if you've got people, you got problems. you got people in your church? Yeah, guess what? you got problems. And in the very early church, as they're getting started, a lot of good things happen, people coming to Christ. But just because you place your faith and trust in Christ doesn't mean that you're just completely 100% sanctified. There's things that are positionally true, like you have eternal security. You're not going to lose your salvation, that you're assured a position, a place in the presence of Christ in heaven. That Jesus is always with you, never leaves you or forsakes you. But that doesn't assure that you're mature. It doesn't happen like that. Like you just wave a little wand and, whoa, you look just like Jesus. No, it's a process. It's growth. Like a child, you grow and mature. And so he says, my brethren, and I want you to hear the deeply pastoral tone here. My dear family members in Christ, do not, verse 1, hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. When he speaks of Jesus, he gives the full title, Lord, speaking of the fact that he's deity, that he's God. Jesus, the human name given to the incarnate Son, which means salvation, and Christ, the Greek word for Messiah. All throughout the Old Testament, God is pointing to one, an anointed one, a Messiah, or in Greek, a Christos, one who will take away sin, one who is, is God and will address the sin issues. One who will give us his spirit to actually dwell in the hearts of his people. This is him, the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if you've got a faith in him, one thing you want to make sure is that you do not hold it with an attitude of personal favoritism. The idea of he's forbidding a, a practice, according to the Greek tense here, that's already happening. And favoritism uh, really has the idea of just lifting someone's face or elevating a person. And it originally wasn't a bad term. But what happened is, is that people started uh, lifting people up based on a superficial basis, like an external basis, like their appearance, or their race, or their wealth, or their rank, or their social status. And what James is saying, hey, listen, if you really know Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, like he's the Lord of your life, meaning he calls the shots, not you, don't hold it with an attitude of personal favoritism. And so he gives an illustration or if a man, verse 2, comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, Wow, really glad you are here. You sit here in a good place. you got a place right up front here, right for you. And you say to the poor man, Ah, well, you're here. Why don't you stand over there? Or, you know, if you want to be a little closer to the action, why don't you sit down on a footstool? Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? This idea of showing off your wealth, let me tell you what it looked like in the first century. I think we kind of know what it looked like in our time. In the first century, in the time of Jesus and James, if you want to display your wealth, okay, what you would do is you would wear rings on your fingers. And wealthy people would wear rings on all their fingers but the middle finger. And they would wear it maybe on both hands. 
And so it was kind of like this. If you wanted to show off, you'd like, people ask, how are you doing? You know, and you'd like, a lot. Very well. Okay? There's even some indications that you could actually rent rings for special occasions. You know, so like, if you have like a class reunion, and you know when you go to a class reunion, even though you were voted class clown, you want to show up like, man, I'm a success, right? And so what you do is you go to the guy that's written the rings, like, listen, I need the best you got, man. I got a class reunion coming up. And you walk in, and you flash it all there, right? Because you're going to show off that you're good, right? It's a facade, but you sure want to get that appearance. Well, rich people, they would not only show off their wealth with these rings, but they also could show up with some pretty flashy clothes, looking shine, bright shining garments, bright color, flashy color. And I want you to know something. James is not condemning rich people, people that wear rings, or people that wear flashy clothes. That's not the issue here. You know what the issue is, don't you? He's addressing how the church responds to these people. How they, the church has this flattering reaction to, oh, world's values, we're going to just take those right into the church. And we're going to be super excited that you are here. So this, here we are at the church of the immaculate perception, and then comes the rich guy, right? And we're all, oh, you got money. And you look like you're important. You get the appearance that you're successful. We've got a place for you. We're looking for folks like you. And on the other hand, you got... A poor person, they, they barely own the clothes that are on them. And they show up and you're like, ugh, you're here. Uh, hey, there's a place in the back, and you won't be bothered too much if you're there, all right? And that's kind of how it goes. And what James is saying, you got a heart issue. Verse 4, you have made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives. And so he says, this has got to be addressed. And he's going to do it. Friends, this is going to be heart surgery time. If you're looking for the easy message, not here today. Because this is going to address us right to the core. Listen to what James says, verse 5. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who, and I don't want you to miss the end of verse 5 because that's the ticket. To those who what? Love him. Did you see it? That's it. You see, God chose the poor. It's not that he exclusively chose the poor or that, man, it's really good to be poor because you like you get the automatic entrance into the kingdom of heaven. That's not quite it, how it works. Let me tell you what's going on here. You see, when you're poor, and that might be actually some people that are here today. You don't even know how you're going to pay the bills this week. And, and really, you can't trust in your finances because you don't have them. And so what it does is it puts you in a position of great need where you find yourself truly dependent upon God. He's all that I have. Literally. And so your heart is like drawn to him because he's God and you're not. And you get it. You're in a position of humility. The problem with wealth. It's not bad to have wealth. It's not bad to have money. It's all right to have it. The problem is, is when it has you, right? What happens is, you got money. And don't be thinking like, I'm talking to the other guy. No, I can assure you, most of you here are wealthy compared to the rest of the world. The propensity to trust in the idol of wealth and riches is so compelling and is so great. 
It's why Jesus spoke about money so often, because it is often the great barrier to complete dependence and faith upon Christ. And that's what he's saying here. The poor people, man, they get it. They have nothing. They trust in God. And it's really interesting. When you look around the world, and you see people that have nothing, I mean, they get one meal. It might be some ground-up corn. They have, they have just the clothes. Many of them are going to die of HIV combined with malaria. And yet they're, they're just super joyful. And they're happy. And they're receptive. We have I mean, spoiled rotten and we're griping and complaining. You know what happens? When we're poor, we recognize, man, God is everything that I need. And if we're wealthy, which many of us are, Friends, we've got to be sure that wealth isn't our God. We can't serve both God and man, and that's what Jesus said. And so he says this. You know, when we're, we're not really loving well, verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppresses you and personally drags you into court? You have treated him poorly. You, This poor individual you've dishonored. You have treated them with disdain. You have not showed them the dignity of them being human. You've, you've allowed discrimination to make these distinctions. And he says, what, did, what are you doing here? You see, you dishonored the poor man. You know, isn't that the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Isn't the people that are trusting in their money, and that's kind of the idea here, aren't, the one, aren't they the ones that make your life miserable? And you think about it, early Christians, if you were a Jewish person and you trusted in Jesus the Messiah, you were rejected by the Jewish people. On the other hand, you didn't fit in with the Gentiles, and you had no one. You were easily oppressed. And the idea of someone trusting in Jesus and not bowing down to a pantheon of gods, or not calling Caesar God, refusing to uh, give any sort of worship to Caesar... And that puts you on the out. That makes you a target, easily oppressed. That is how it works. You look at Christians and societies where Christianity is not popular or furthermore condemned, and these people pay a price. And it's the rich people that put them through the ringer. And what he's saying here is this, hey, what's going on here? You've dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you to court? And do they look at verse 7? Do they not? Blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called. Blaspheme is to speak with great disrespect or irreverence. So they mock Jesus. By the way, blasphemy, pretty popular. If you really want to make a point, you want to show those kids you're serious, or you want to make a statement of the office, you just throw in Jesus God in kind of a blasphemous way, right? People know, oh man, he's running his business because he's, he's swearing with God's name involved. And this is all blasphemy. God treats his name as holy because it's an expression of his character. And what James is saying, you know, these rich people that you're bowing down to because you've adopted the world's value, they're the very ones who oftentimes make your life miserable. And furthermore, they are the ones who blaspheme my name. Now, James isn't denouncing wealth, per se, and he's not advocating reverse discrimination. What he's advocating is that we show favor to everyone. We're not discriminating people. And so he says, you want to know the solution to this? Is there anybody curious or interested in the solution? Well, if you are, good thing you got your Bibles open to James chapter 2, because look at verse 8. Here it is. If, however, 
You are fulfilling the royal law according to scripture. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. It's the royal law. It's the law of the king. And what is it? It is summarized here. This is a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You and I, when we start loving people like this, we're doing well. You see, this is the law of the king. Six different times in the Gospels, this particular statement or a variation of it is made by Jesus. This is my law, says Jesus. People that are in my kingdom, meaning I'm their king, they follow me, they're living in the realm of grace, love, forgiveness, and mercy. This is how we're to live. You're to love. Like remember what Jesus said, John 15, 12? This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You watch me. You see how I love you and all your idiosyncrasies and all your issues. I love you. I care for you. I want you to start showing that kind of love to others. That's how it works. And James is calling his people to obey the royal law, a love that would prohibit them from discriminating against anyone. That's what he's calling for. And who's your neighbor? That uh, question was um, being asked by a particular pastor. Um, He was preaching on loving your neighbor. And for a kind of rhetorical effect, he asked this question three times. Who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? You know, and how they go like, who is my neighbor? And they're all shaking and stuff. You think their head's going to fall off. And there was a boy toward the back there. And each time the pastor said, ask, who is my neighbor? He said, Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. Mr. Rogers. He's your neighbor. He wants to be your neighbor. He sings a song about it. He takes his shoes off, puts flippers on, he wears a little cardigan. He really wants to be your neighbor. Yeah, Mr. Rogers wants to be your neighbor. That's true. But actually, it's all of us in humanity. Every human. All of us made in God's image. Whoever you come across who's in your sphere, he wants us to treat them as neighbors. And you see this? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You got a right perspective on you, and you got a right perspective toward others. When you do this, friends, you're doing well. And friends, it's all found this. Our life in Christ enables us to have a love that sees past labels. And so he says, verse 9, but if, could be translated since, since, or if you show partiality, verse 9, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So he's saying, listen, if you sin, you are a transgressor. And to help you understand what he's saying here, he says, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. You Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what he's doing here is he's helping you understand the nature of God's law. God gives his law. It's like his finger pointing and saying, this is the way to life. This is the way to true joy in me. Live this way. But what happens is we don't understand that it's a complete unity that provides the understanding of what it means to love God fully and to love others as ourselves, to love our neighbors. And to break one of the laws is really to put yourself in violation of all of it. You and I like to pick and choose. Like, well, 
I'm not going to do this one or this one, but you know, some of these others are unimportant. Like for instance, like, like gluttony. Like many Americans would never even consider gluttony a sin, okay? But it is. Just like many Americans wouldn't consider discrimination a sin. So we just kind of avoid it. And what he's not trying to do is to help people understand. You're showing discrimination. You're running around with prejudice. You're showing it in the church. It's a sin. It's kind of like this. You break one law, you're guilty of it all. It's kind of like you had a window pane, and you take a hammer, and you, you punch a hole right through it. You'll have that hole. But you know, the whole entire window pane now lacks integrity in its composition. It's all broken. Why? There's been a violation. And that's how it works. You break one law, you're guilty of it all. And it's kind of like you're, if you were speeding and you appear before a municipal judge and you're saying, well, hey, judge, I want you to know something here. You're dealing with a really good guy. I haven't robbed a bank. I haven't murdered anybody. And he's like, well, or she's like, you know, I'm glad to hear that. But you're still guilty of going 30 miles an hour over the speeding limit. You're guilty. And that's how it is. If there is a sin, that shows that you and I are in desperate need of a savior, I gotta say, it's gotta be discrimination. Anybody wanna stand up and say, you know, I don't think I've ever discriminated against anybody? Never set any artificial barriers? Never avoided anyone because they looked or acted a little bit differently than me? Man, friends, this shows us our need for Jesus, the need for the gospel, the need for forgiveness. And that's why Christ has come. We're lawbreakers, much more than we give ourselves credit for. And that's why Jesus has come, lived a perfect life, dies as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. He rose again. You want forgiveness? You want life? And you want to live life in love differently? Friends, that's all found in Jesus. And I'll tell you, we got some serious discrimination issues in our country. And frankly, it's only been getting worse, right? I mean, look what's going on. And I'll tell you, it's not about bringing some sort of societal reform. Don't think that, well, we'll just elect another president, and he'll do or she'll do a better job at getting it all fixed in our country. We are sinners by nature. We discriminate. It's like part of our DNA. You want the solution. If you really want the solution to discrimination, it's the gospel of Jesus. Because only he can affect heart change. You and I are dead in our trespasses and sins. God has a remedy. He has given us his son. His son not only gives forgiveness of sins, he gives us life, a life where we can truly love our neighbor as ourselves, And we're going to lead in love if we're going to see progress. And so that's what he says. So verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. The law of liberty, the law of freedom in Christ. That's what we are. We are free in Christ because Christ has paid the penalty for sin. He's given us his righteousness. We are justified by faith. It's not a freedom to do whatever you want. No, that's actually a misunderstanding of grace. Freedom in Christ means that we are free to live out his truth. We're no longer dominated by sin. We are free to love without labels. Why? Because Jesus is our heart, our strength. We're united with him. We are being judged by the law of liberty. We've been declared righteous and free. We are now free to love. And so he says in closing verse 13, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Kind of how it works is this. God intends to show his mercy 
through those who know his mercy. You and I, we deserve hell, right? We deserve judgment. God is gracious. He is merciful. And he has his son die in our place. He extends to us grace and mercy, not only so that we'll know the fellowship and relationship with God, not only so that we'll be in heaven with him forever, but so that we will become tools in the master's hand to demonstrate mercy to others. Where discrimination is going to be set aside and triumph, the triumph of mercy is going to take place. And friends, one of the things that was so very attractive about Jesus, one of the great virtues of Jesus, is that he was a man who knew no discrimination. He was so comfortable in his skin, the God-man. He was comfortable with being with the leadership of Jews, like, for instance, with Nicodemus, one of the rulers of the Jews. And he was comfortable being with the, the woman at that uh, well in Sychar. Remember her? She had so many husbands, you couldn't count them all. Jesus could easily interface in all those circles. Early church, you got a, you got a runaway slave named Onesimus, and you got Paul who's working with the Holy Spirit saying, you know what? Writing to his former, the slave owner Philemon saying, listen, enough. In Christ, we're together. You've got a wealthy guy by the name of Barnabas. He's selling land and giving all the money to the church so it can move forward with its mission. And you've got a poor guy with a tin cup asking for all together. Friends, that's the kingdom. This is Jesus. And we demonstrate the reality of our faith by the way that we live. And so you see, mercy in Christ is the triumph. And the reason that James is addressing this is if you and I don't address discrimination, this great obstacle, there is no moving forward in Christian maturity. This might be the great holdup. And so James, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is addressing it head on. See, how we receive people is to be how we've been received by Christ, with great mercy and with great love. The answer is not reverse discrimination. It's not, well, we're going to treat the poor like royalty. And we're going to treat those who've got wealth like dirt. No, that's not the answer. The answer is dignity with love. No one is unworthy to be seated. I'll just tell you here at Fellowship, we want to be a microcosm of heaven. Every tribe, tongue, and nation. Every background. Whether you're wealthy or you don't have anything. It, we want to be united with Christ to give a picture to this community of what it looks like where Jesus is the head and we're all united with one another and we love one another and the issues of discrimination have gone away. But not just here, friends. We want to move forward from going out those doors into our community. we got a message of love, a message that we're to live. Let me give you just two application points on how to do this. One, just see each person Every person as created in God's image. Do this. You're running around at school, at the mall, in your community. You're at Walmart, you're overwhelmed, or at HEB, and you're seeing people. Just, it's like, man, that person, they're made in God's image. That, she, she's made in God's image. They share to a limited degree, just like all of us, some of the characteristics of God. He loves them so much that he made them. You see, learning to see people as God sees them is central to loving people well. Let me give you a second point of application. Take the first step. Take the first step 
and just make a friendly connection with someone who is different than you. Now, we obviously, we're all different, and sometimes those differences are great and rather apparent. I am challenging you, try this. Take the first step with just a friendly act of kindness. Lead with love. Try it. Because that's what God intends, to bring transformation through the gospel to those who actually believe it, who know Jesus, and we're taking it to our community. I will tell you that small efforts can make a big difference. And I'm not going to set myself up as like, oh, I've got it, and you just, just do everything that I do because I fall short. But I want you to know that this isn't theory for me. I've been really actively seeking the Lord to do this in my own heart. I'll just give you just a couple just illustrations. Maybe this will be helpful. So on Friday, uh, I was going to the football game. I wanted to get into a particular parking garage. So they gave me a nice little parking pass. And we had a police barricade. Two officers sitting in the police car. And they were not going to let me in. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm not sure what to do. So I thought I'd just engage this officer, African-American officer. And I thought I'd just engage him in conversation. And I began by just telling him, hey, I just want you to know how much I appreciate what you do and how you put yourself on the line each day. You are the thin blue line that keeps sanity in our community. I want to thank you. I told him my brother was a police officer outside of Nashville. And this guy was totally taken aback when he told me, man, I'm not used to hearing things like that. And then he told me how he got involved with police work. This guy saw all the problems in our community and he wanted to make a difference. And he says, I'm willing to put it on the line every day. It was a great conversation. I did have to leave and go someplace else apart, but it was still a great conversation. But he was friendly about it, and I made a friend. Uh, as I was making my way, I had this uh, iced tea in a can, and um, uh, you know, you're approaching, and there's security and all that sort of stuff, and um, you know, you can't bring drinks into the stadium. And I just checked, there's this guy, and he's sweeping up garbage. And he kind of looked like he was just kind of on the outside, part of the security thing. And uh, I said, can you bring drinks in? Like, no. I said, listen, I just want you to have this. Nice, it's nice cold. I, it's not unopened. I just want to give this to you. And he was just like, whoa, thank you. He couldn't believe that I'd do that. And he was just overwhelmed that there would be just a small expression of kindness to someone who's just always ignored. You're in the way. You sweep garbage. We could be standing right next to him, but it's as if they're not there. Small thing. And so, friends, small efforts can make a big difference. I am challenging you. Lead with love, and you take the first step. Don't be waiting. Start being proactive and move forward. Pastor Jim Simbola, he's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle. Um, I'm sure you've heard of uh, their music that comes out of there. It's awesome. He writes in his book, You Were Made for More, of a situation that after 9-11, they had four people in their church die in the attacks of 9-11, coming on to its 15th anniversary. And one of those people that were killed was one a police officer. And at the funeral of the police officer uh, that morning, uh, the mayor, Rudy Giuliani, was asked to speak. And I want you to hear what he said. Here's the mayor, Rudy Giuliani. You know, people, I've learned something through all this. Let me see if I can express it to you. When everybody was fleeing that building, the cops and the firefighters and the EMS people were heading up into it. Do you think any of them said, I wonder how many blacks are up there for us to save? I wonder what percentage are whites up there? How many Jews are there? Let's see. Are these people making 400000 a year? 
or 24,000 more? No. When you're saving lives, they're all precious. And that's how we're supposed to live all the time. How would you want the cops to treat you if you were on the 75th floor that day? Would you want them to say, excuse me, but I've got to get the bosses out first? Not exactly. I confess, I haven't always lived this way, but I'm convinced that God wants us to do it. He wants us to value every human life the way he does. Symbol of rights. The words of the mayor moved everyone who had gathered that day for the funeral. I sat there thinking, my goodness, the mayor is preaching a truth that has eluded so many of our churches throughout New York and the country. He may have stood for other policies that I could not agree with, but on that day, he was right on the mark. The truth of what he said penetrated my heart. The world you and I live in is falling apart before our eyes. We are God's only representatives on the planet and simply cannot take time to pick and choose who needs help. They all need help. They all need the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. They all need to be rescued from the horror of an eternity apart from God. So friends, we need a love that sees past labels. And we've got it. We've got it in Jesus. You see, our life in Christ enables us to have a love that sees past labels. And you and I can truly fulfill the law of the king, the royal law, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Friends, we must. And it starts now. Let's pray. Lord, this is an amazing passage of scripture. You address the real heart issues. You do it with truth and love. We need both. And so God, for times that we've sinned in this area of discrimination, we confess it. God changes. There's someone who has come here today who has never trusted Jesus. And they see him for who he is. And they see the need for him because of our sin. But they just pray with me and say, God, I, I turn from self and my sin. And this morning, I trust in Jesus to be the Lord of my life. God, help us to follow you well, to represent you well. And we need you to do it. To do it in your strength, through your spirit, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.